0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: This is CNN Breaking News.
2: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over Tel Aviv. It is just after 11 p.m. here, and we're covering... Three major stories right now. The war here, the end to the chaotic speakership saga back in Washington, D.C., and former President Donald Trump in a stunning appearance on the stand today in his New York civil fraud trial. We're going to start with breaking news from Israel. It has been 18 days since the horrific attacks by Hamas caught this country and frankly much of the world by surprise just over an hour ago from this rooftop. We heard explosions, presumably from Israel's Iron Dome defense system, intercepting several rockets fired on Tel Aviv from Gaza. And just minutes ago, Israeli emergency services confirmed that four people were injured with something, possibly shrapnel, hitting this home in the town of Rishon LeZion. A reminder that Hamas continues to try to kill as many Israeli civilians as they can with their rockets. They are just not able to do so because of the Iron Dome defense system. Meanwhile, this evening, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed this grieving nation, still mourning after Hamas's horrific October 7th terrorist attack where 1,400 Israelis were brutally murdered. Speaking in Hebrew, Netanyahu alluded to the massive intelligence and military readiness failures of his administration that day, saying, quote, everyone will have to give answers, including myself, but that will only happen after the war, unquote. Meanwhile, there are roughly still 600 American citizens stuck in Gaza amidst a full-blown humanitarian crisis there for the 2.3 million Palestinians. The main United Nations and organization in Gaza says it will be forced to stop its operations today due to a lack of fuel blocked from entering Gaza as Israel remains certain that Hamas will steal any fuel shipments into Gaza and use that fuel to launch its rockets into Israel and kill innocent Israeli citizens. Humanitarian concerns have been echoed by Western allies who have called for a humanitarian pause in Israel's strikes on Gaza. That suggested pause, essentially just a rebranded term for a ceasefire, which Israel is wholly opposed to, given the 1,400 murders and more than 200 people still being held hostage by Hamas. In their web of underground tunnels all this as another chapter unfolds of course as we mentioned earlier in the complete and utter dysfunction in washington dc among house republicans this afternoon after four candidates and 22 days of self-inflicted pain and paralysis upon an entire chamber of the u.s congress and the legisl- le- legislative branch of congress and, and of course on the u.s government and the u.s People, Republicans finally named conservative Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana as Speaker of the House. And we're going to tell you more about Speaker-elect Johnson, or Speaker Johnson, rather, in a minute. But first, let's get to the big breaking news of the hour: former President Donald Trump fined $10,000 for fi- violating a gag order again. The judge in Trump's New York civil fraud trial warning the former president today to quote, don't do it again or will it'll be worse. CNN's Bryn Gingrass is outside the courthouse in New York City and Bryn, the judge issued the fine after Trump took the stand. What happened?
3: Yeah, that's right. Actually, Trump right now is in with the judge. The courtroom is cleared. His lawyers are with him. It's unclear what they're discuss- discussing, possibly this $10,000 fine. I want you, Jay, to listen to first what Trump said, and then I can explain how this all unfolded uh, this afternoon in court.
4: This judge is uh, a very partisan judge with a person who's very partisan sitting alongside him, perhaps even much
3: more partisan than he is. Now, you heard him say that he called the judge partisan and the person sitting next to him very partisan. Now, it's important, Jake, when you think about this. In the courtroom, the judge is in the middle. To his right is his court clerk, and to his left is the witness box. At the time, sitting there was Michael Cohen. Well, Trump was brought back into the courtroom. The judge made him take the stand and answer, under oath, who was he talking about when he said the person next to him is very partisan? And under oath, Trump said that he was talking about Michael Cohen. Well, after he got off the stand, the judge said this. As a trier of fact, I find that the witness is not credible. And he was referring to my law clerk. Remember, there was a gag order in place. It, it was that Trump could not speak ill about anyone associated with this judge's staff. This is the second time the judge has said he has violated this gag order. And he put down this $10,000 fine. Well, Trump's attorneys thought that, saying that it's unusual that a law clerk would be sitting right next to the judge and that they feel like this case is being tried by two judges. But that did not stand. That argument did not stand. And the judge kept that $10,000 fine uh, in place. Something else very important to discuss here, Jake, the fact that Michael Cohen was cross examined at the end of the day. He's no longer on the stand. But there was some flip-flopping that happened that essentially angered Trump so much. She threw up his hands and left the courtroom uh, for the end part of the day we are actually hearing from michael cohen right now about that exchange that happened on the stand we're expecting to hear from the new york attorney general there's a lot that's happened in the last hour of this civil trial jake and we'll continue to update you uh, but as of now the civil trial will then now continue uh, tomorrow jake
2: all right bridge Gress, thanks so much i want to go now to see an- senior legal analyst uh, ellie Honig Ellie, uh, what are the risks for Donald Trump uh, being questioned under oath?
5: Well, Jake, anytime anyone takes a stand, particularly if they're under multiple indictments, they run the risk of incriminating themselves. Trump actually would have had the option here to take the fifth and refuse to testify. But in this scenario, the judge, could have used that against Donald Trump. The second risk is precisely what happened. Donald Trump took the stand and the judge said, I find you non-credible, I don't believe you. And hence the judge ruled against Donald Trump and levied the increased fine.
2: And when the, when the judge says, quote, don't do it again or it'll be worse, what could worse mean? Does it mean more than $10,000? Which let's, let's be honest, that's pocket change for Donald Trump or does he mean jail time maybe?
5: So that's precisely the dilemma that the judge has here. The two tools that the judge has at his disposal are one, fines, and two, jail time. In fact, the judge went out of his way the last time to warn Donald Trump, if you do it again, I can find you more and I can at least theoretically imprison you. Now, I don't think that's at all likely. And I think, the, as you note, Jake, the financial amounts here are not really enough to deter Donald Trump. So the judge is going to have to engage in some sort of escalating deterrence here. And the judge said, my concern here is someone's going to get killed. So I think the judge needs to respond accordingly. I don't know that a $5,000 fine and then a $10,000 fine are going to do it.
2: Let's turn to the Georgia election subversion case where Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants Uh, were charged with trying to overturn the state's uh, 2020 election results. Uh, uh, And just into CNN, new exclusive reporting, Georgia prosecutors are considering plea deals with six additional co-defendants. Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Ken Chesbro, and Scott Hall have already pleaded guilty, Ellie. Six more plea deals, that would mean almost half of the co-defendants will have flipped on Trump.
5: Yeah, Jake. So that would mean nineteen defendants originally, four we know have pled, that brings us down to fifteen. If another six plead, that gets us down to nine remaining co-defendants. This is what you have to do as a prosecutor. Ellie, I'm we sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt, Allie. I'm like sorry.
2: This. I have to I apologize. We're going to go to Michael Cohen, who's speaking live outside the courtroom. Let's go to that.
6: He's got the wrong guy to intimidate. As you've seen, I haven't stopped since I don't know how many years now. And I won't until, as I said, accountability is had. Why do you think
7: my my name is Jeffrey Levine and uh, I just want to expand on one thing that Michael said, and then I'm going to share some additional thoughts. First thing was not only did the judge deny the motion to dismiss but he did it twice. And the second time he did it, he said absolutely denied. So like many other things with Michael, I can say in over 30 years of practicing law, I've never seen a judge issue a ruling that says absolute, denied is enough, absolutely denied. That's going beyond. And then he followed up the judge saying, there's enough evidence in this room to find you liable. So it wasn't solely on Michael He is a witness. He is not the witness because there's a lot of other evidence. As for my other statements, I just want to say, and I've said this before regarding Michael, that a little light dispels a lot of darkness. And Michael has gone on this path to shine that light. And he has an enormous burden in doing so, like today and yesterday. His family and he have paid dearly for his choice to shine that light. And I say this not only as Michael's lawyer, but we've known each other since middle school. So I've known Michael nearly 45 years. and. I'm really pleased to be here under these circumstances, I'm pleased to be here to support Michael and to witness him righting wrongs and speaking truth to power, in particular here
2: in this All right. So the uh, testimony of Jeffrey Levine about his client, uh, Michael Cohen, Uh, Ellie uh, Ellie Honig, let let me go back to you. Do you think these plea deals in the Georgia case, um, we already have had four individuals uh, flip on Trump. There might be six others. Um, Do you think they could undermine the credibility of the case?
5: Well, Jake, I think on one hand, it is a good thing for prosecutors to get plea deals because you're locking in convictions. You're sort of showing the world that yes, these people who I've charged are guilty. However, we do have to ask what's in these plea deals because here's the reality now. We've seen four people plead guilty so far. All four of them were charged with being part of this massive racketeering enterprise. The goal was to steal the 2020 election, looking at a five year minimum in prison what they've all been allowed to plead guilty to, none of them have had to plead guilty to that racketeering enterprise. Instead, they've all pled to either very low-level felonies or to misdemeanors, and not a single one of them is going to do a day behind bars as a result of the pleas. Now, are they going to cooperate in a way that's effective, that's useful to the DA? That remains to be seen. I mean, look at Sidney Powell. She admitted to this very narrow conduct in Coffee County, but yet she's still out there spewing election fraud lies. So I don't know how viable a witness she's ultimately going to be. So it matters, Jake, what's in the details of these plea deals. And it is fair to question whether they're getting too lenient of a deal here.
8: All right,
2: Ellie Honig, thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN's uh, Kristen Holmes now, uh, if I can. And, And this is now Kristen, the second fine that Trump has received from this judge who has been warning the former president it could get worse. What is the reaction inside Trump world uh, to what happened today?
9: Yeah, Jacob, I mean, it depends if you're talking about officially or unofficially. Officially, they are, of course, saying the same thing. This is a Democratic judge who is trying to take away Donald Trump's First Amendment rights. But privately, there is a lot of questions as to how exactly this is going to work and a lot of skepticism as to whether or not Donald Trump can actually abide by this gag order. You have to remember that for years, Donald Trump's advisors and even more recently campaign advisors have been trying to manage his messaging. They know that is not possible. And remember, that is when Donald Trump believes that the people trying to manage his messaging have his best interest at heart, which he obviously does not believe in the case of this judge. Part of Donald Trump's strategy when it comes to his legal, mounting legal peril is to play this out in the court of public opinion. What that means is taking every opportunity he can to talk to the media. That is why he's always going over to the cameras. That's why he's posting on Truth Social. He wants to create his own narrative around this and then again play this out in the court of public opinion, not in a courtroom. This severely limits his capabilities to do that. So whether or not he can actually abide by a gag order, that is a real question, even among his closest aides and advisors who have tried and tried to keep him on message, often to only be left with their mouths dropped open when he says something that they cannot believe came out of his mouth.
2: All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Appreciate it. To another big story this hour. The newly minted Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. He was a key figure who once led efforts to overturn the free and fair 2020 election. And that's not the only controversial mark on his resume. Stay with us.
10: The challenge before us is great, but the time for action is now. And I will not let you down.
2: We're back with our other big domestic story tonight. After 22 days of complete chaos on Capitol Hill, House Republicans have finally managed to select a new Speaker of the House. His name is Congressman Mike Johnson. He is a four-term Congressman from Louisiana. He did what over a dozen Republican speaker candidates were unable to do, which is get 217 votes and unite the party, including the hard right, and the right, and the few moderates that are left.
10: We want our allies around the world to know that this body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business. Speaker Johnson's ascension
2: Uh, does not come without controversy. He seems, he has a a manner that is moderate, but he is without question one of the most conservative members of Congress in the House. He's one of the most staunch opponents of abortion. Uh, He led efforts to overturn and decertify the 2020 election, an election that has been proven time and again to have had no widespread voter fraud. Perhaps the following two moments sum this up best. The first, a floor speech that occurred almost simultaneously as rioters smashed the windows and breached the Capitol on January 6th. The second,
10: just last night. Madam Speaker, we have a solemn responsibility today. We must vote to sustain objections to states of electors submitted by states that we genuinely believe clearly violated the Constitution and the presidential election of 2020. This is the threshold legal question before us and it's an issue before us for the state of Arizona.
3: Mr. Johnson, you helped lead the efforts to overturn
10: the 2020 election results for you. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Hmm.
2: So it was important then, but doesn't want to talk about it now. Interesting. Anyway, who exactly is Congressman Speaker Mike Johnson? What does he stand for? CNN's Brian Todd takes a look at Speaker Johnson's record.
11: Frankly,
12: we did win this election. In those contentious days after the 2020 election, when then-President Trump was desperately maneuvering to hold on to power, Mike Johnson was one of Trump's most zealous supporters in Congress.
10: The system is set up for massive fraud and error and and irregularity. And we cannot have that in our election system.
12: The Republican from Louisiana led a group of conservative lawmakers who signed a court filing, which tried to nullify electoral college votes in several states won by Joe Biden, a legal effort that was soundly rejected by the Supreme Court.
13: I think all of that is uh, partly what makes him uh, a favorable uh, candidate for Donald Trump. You can expect Democrats to be uh, looking to highlight this stuff. Just after
12: the 2020 election was called for Joe Biden, Johnson posted on X, then known as Twitter, quote, I have just called President Trump to say this. Stay strong and keep fighting, sir. The nation is depending upon your resolve. Today, outside court, the former president complimented the congressman. I think Mike Johnson is doing very well. He's
4: a tremendous congressman, respected by everybody.
12: But if you think the former conservative radio talk show host came out of nowhere to win the speakership, you might not be alone. Longtime Senator Susan Collins, from Johnson's own party, said, quote, I was going to Google him this morning.
13: A lot of people don't know him, which means he doesn't have a lot of enemies.
12: First elected to Congress in 2016, Johnson staunchly opposes abortion and celebrated the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, calling it a, quote, great, joyous occasion.
10: The founders, the, the ones who put this country together, recognized that life was sacred because it is given to us by our creator, by God.
12: Johnson's also been a fierce opponent of LGBTQ rights. In the mid-2000s, he wrote in an op-ed in the Shreveport Times that homosexuality is, quote, an inherently unnatural and dangerous lifestyle that would lead to legalized pedophilia. The 51-year-old Johnson, according to Politico, is the least experienced speaker elected in 140 years. Is he in over his head?
1: The speaker job is an on-the-job training situation. Nobody's prepared for that role unless they've already been in it
12: analysts say mike johnson won't have much of a honeymoon period as house speaker one of his first big tests will come in the days leading up to the november 17th government shutdown deadline a test to see if he can work with democrats to keep the government funded and if he can navigate those treacherous waters of the hardline republicans who tossed kevin mccarthy from power jake
2: all right brian todd thank you so much let's bring in uh, republican congressman mike waltz of florida uh, congressman um Thanks for joining us. Every single Republican who was present today voted to make uh, Mike Johnson the new speaker. Uh, Congratulations. Did you ever think your party would ever come to a consensus over anyone? It it did. I have to say, it did seem at one point that there would be no one who would be able to get 217. uh, But then when Mike Johnson's name emerged, it seemed like the party pretty quickly coalesced around him.
14: Yeah, Jake, I think... uh Mike Johnson sits uh, right at kind of in that sweet spot, frankly, within our coalition. Uh, He is admired for his work on judiciary, whether that's on many of the social issues that he does have a very conservative view on and that he has a lot of support within our delegation. Uh, At the same time, he literally sits right next to me in armed services and has a very clear-eyed view of the threats facing this country, of the need for American strength, of the need for investment uh, in our defense, and from the overwhelming threat that is coming from the Chinese Communist Party, from Iran, uh, Russia, and North Korea. So I think that, you know, he really sits in a unique spot. And uh, as you can see already, uh, there there is a very substantive base as a constitutional lawyer and a deep history and knowledge to his belief that he can back up uh, intellectually and substantively all day long. But his demeanor is not as confrontational. I think that made it very palatable for our entire conference. Uh, he's ready to get back to work. He shares uh, many of our vision for why we are elected and why we have the majority. Uh, and I'm looking forward to supporting him. Yeah, he does.
2: He has a more moderate style. But he is... And I don't don't think he would disagree with this. He is one of the most conservative members of Congress. And I wonder if you worry at all that he will try to bring the party with him to the far right when there are more moderate members and other people who might not want to pass a, for instance, a national abortion ban uh, because they're not comfortable with that.
14: Well, look, I think he would wear what you just said as one of, as one of the more uh, substantive and conservative uh, members of our conference as a badge of honor. Uh, and, you know, I think what so many people appreciate, him, appreciate about him is his views are, are, are deeply rooted. Uh, they're thoughtful. He articulates them well. Uh, and, and no one, I, I don't think, really has a, a belief that he's just doing it for pure politics or telling people what they want to hear. Will he have to govern an entire conference and get us all on the same page with a, with a narrow majority? Absolutely. That's why this job is, uh, is one of the toughest that I think uh, there is anywhere, anywhere in the world.
2: All right, Republican Congressman Mike Waltz, uh, good to see you, sir. Thank you so much for being with us. All right, thanks, Jay. Coming up next, uh, next up for Speaker Johnson, fights over funding for Ukraine funding for Israel, not to mention that government shutdown which could be on the way next month. So how do House Republicans move forward? We're going to pick up the conversation in a moment.
9: Thank
0: you. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like.
2: We're back with more on today's lesson uh, in democracy is messy after weeks of ugly infighting Republicans finally got their act together and elected. Oh, Donald Trump is talking outside the courthouse. Let's listen in.
4: Evaluations, and he was caught lying like nobody's ever lied. It was better than a Perry Mason moment. Uh, and that should be the end of the case. That should, in any other case, any other judge, this would be the end of the case. We're being railroaded here. The city and state are railroaded. Businesses are leaving because of this. But the their only witness, their chief witness, their only witness just admitted, number one, he lied. And he admitted he lied. He said he lied numerous times. And then he said, as per the best television show that you'll ever imagine, he said, I did not me i did not ask him to manipulate figures that should be the end of the case if we had a jury this case would have never started practically also it's a statute that's never used it was only used for trump this is a very unfair thing and other businesses are watching it and if they move to new york they're crazy as far as the speaker is concerned he is a fantastic gentleman and i think he's going to do a great job Mike
15: Johnson, Louisiana, is going to
2: do a great job. Thank you, everybody. All right, uh, Donald Trump speaking outside uh, the courtroom there. Uh, let's bring in uh, Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, uh, explain uh, to our viewers what exactly this most recent airing of grievances uh, is about <laughs> and what you think he uh, th- this will result in if there is a a penalty or not.
5: Yeah, so let me try to clarify this, Jake. So what Donald Trump is talking about here is the testimony of Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen over the years during his congressional testimony and at this trial has explained the instructions that Donald Trump gave him in different ways. At times, Michael Cohen has said, No, Donald Trump never specifically told me to inflate the value of assets. At other times he said, well, but it was generally understood. Donald Trump knew how to make his will known without specifically saying it. There's a bit of a discrepancy there. That's fair game for cross examination. That's fair game for Trump's lawyers to argue to the judge ultimately here. Michael Cohen's not credible. His testimony has been inconsistent. Here's where Donald Trump is off the rails though. This does not mean the case is over. Witnesses sometimes have inconsistencies. It's up to the trier of fact, in this case, up to a judge. It doesn't mean game over, I've won, let's go home. It means this witness has had some damage done on cross-examination, as we expected, and ultimately it'll
2: be up to the up to the judge.
4: We're being railroaded here, the city and state are railroaded, businesses are leaving because of this.
2: And uh, Ellie Honig, uh, in, in addition, um, do you think that Donald Trump, who has been repeatedly told uh, and threatened with a gag order. Do you think him going out there and saying, I'm, we're being railroaded here. Do you think, uh, that that will have any impact? Again, his complaining, uh, his, his taking issue with the manner of, of the trial, et cetera.
5: Well, he's towing the line, as we've seen quite a bit. The gag order in this particular case, there's actually two. There's a separate gag order in one of the criminal cases in D.C., but the gag order in this case, this is the civil trial in New York, is very narrow. All the judge said is, you cannot say anything about my staff. The judge actually accepted himself. He just said, my clerks, my courtroom staff. And so I think Trump's general comments about the conduct of the trial are probably not specific enough, to violate the gag order. In contrast, I should note to the comments that Donald Trump has made now twice, which the judges found do specifically go to the clerk, and that's why the judge has found Donald Trump violated that gag order twice and fined him twice.
2: All right, Ellie honig thank you so much. I want to bring uh, bring in uh, Jamie Gangel right now uh, to talk uh, more uh, about Speaker uh, Mike Johnson and, and Jamie. Uh, we've been talking uh, about uh, Speaker Johnson, uh, and uh, what's interesting. One of the things uh, that's been going on with Speaker Johnson uh, is uh, that uh, he, um, he he's a, he's a very smooth operator. Like I co- I covered him way back in two thousand five, uh, and I was in Louisiana, and uh, I was covering a parish there that continued to proselytize uh, its public school students, continued to do school prayer, public school prayer, even though courts kept telling them to stop. And he worked for a group called like the Alliance for De- Alliance Defense Fund or something like that. And he presented these very, very Christian conservative uh, views in a very moderate mainstream presentation and I remember turning to my producer Avery Miller at the time and saying this guy is going to be a congressman very quickly Um, I did not know this is about 18 years ago I did not I would not have predicted he would be a speaker (laughs) within within 20 years but it does not really actually surprise me because he has these very conservative views as Michael Waltz, Congressman Waltz acknowledged earlier Um, he's one of the most conservative members of the house and yet in manner and bearing he seems like a, a next door dad
16: right so it, look I, we're looking
2: I, outside right now uh so jamie i'm sorry for interrupting no right now uh letitia james is, is, is speaking let's listen in Basically
16: corroborate the testimony of a number of witnesses it's also important to know that michael cohen is not the main witness his evidence has been corroborated by the mountains of evidence enough evidence to fill the courtroom and so I look forward again to this um, trial continuing, and I look always, and I of course I always look forward to justice. Thank you very much. And let me also remind you that the judge has already made a decision with respect to the summary judgment. There is sufficient evidence to prove that, in fact, Mr. Trump, the Trump Organization, and the other defendants committed widespread fraud.
6: I know he's not the main witness, Are you satisfied. With that? it sounds like it was enough. a bad yeah.
2: All right, so that was uh, Tis James uh, talking uh, right now. J- Jamie Gangel, what is your impression right now of, of what's going on uh, in this courtroom uh, right now with Donald Trump?
16: Well, I, the thing that struck me today was the fine for the gag order, $10,000 fine. And it reminded me, Jake, you may remember in, when we covered Bob Woodward's first book on Trump, Fear. And Woodward tells the story of how Trump's own lawyer, John Dowd, said, you can't go on the stand Uh, if you testify, was the quote, you'll end up in an orange jumpsuit. And I remind everyone of that because one of the things the judge did in the gag order ruling was Trump took the stand. He was under oath. And he said, oh, I was talking about Michael Cohen, not your clerk the judge said that wasn't credible. So just big picture. I, that was my takeaway from today's um, court appearance.
2: And Ellie, what does this tell you about what comes next in the trial?
5: So Letitia James made a really important point there. Michael Cohen is on the stand now. He's obviously a very important witness, but there's a lot of evidence here that needs to be gone through. There are other witnesses from inside the Trump organization. There are financial documents. And so the point the attorney general made there is this is a long trial. There's a lot of evidence. And she made another really important point to keep in mind. The judge has already given what we call summary judgment, meaning she's already found in favor of the AG against Donald Trump on one of the allegations in this case, the allegation of repetitive and persistent fraud. So the AG's already won that issue, but there's still a long way to go. This case, Michael Cohen's very important, but this case does not solely rise or fall on Michael Cohen's testimony.
2: All right, Jamie Gingall and Enli thank you so much, appreciate sure. it. Here in the Middle East, uh, emergency aid that should be headed into Gaza has been crippled by a fight over fuel we're going to tell you where that stands next welcome back to the lead we're live from tel aviv diplomatic tensions are escalating after the united nations secretary general antonio guterres said this at a un security council meeting yesterday
6: it is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation.
2: He went on to say he was not trying to justify the appalling attacks, but in response, Israel's ambassador to the United Nations called for Gutierrez's resignation. Today, Israel's ambassador to the UN said that Israel will block visas to UN representatives that, quote, the time has come to teach them a lesson which prompted the UN secretary general to make this statement today
6: to quote, set the record straight. I am shocked by the misrepresentations by some of my statement yesterday in the Security Council, as if, as if I was justifying acts of terror by Hamas. This is false, it was the opposite.
2: Let's bring in CNN's Clarissa Ward, who is live in Cairo, Egypt. Um, Clarissa, diplomatic fight has been playing out for quite some time as the fuel shortage is intensifying the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Bring us up to speed.
8: So there has been so much back and forth about this, Jake. Uh, the Israelis have been saying that Hamas actually holds uh, hundreds of thousands of liters of fuel. But meanwhile, when we talk to humanitarian organizations, hospitals, the UN on the ground, they say that this has actually now reached a crisis point. The World Health Organization saying that 12 of Gaza's 35 hospitals are now essentially out of commission, eight of those because they have simply run out of fuel. The UN uh, Relief and Works Agency that operates inside of Gaza has said. Previously, that they would be forced to stop their operations tonight. Uh, Earlier this afternoon, speaking to CNN, they appeared to sort of calibrate that message slightly and said that if they run out of fuel tonight or tomorrow, they will be uh, forced to drastically reduce their operations. We've been in touch with a number of doctors and hospitals on the ground who say that they really are now on their last drops of fuel. And what's important to remember here, Jake, of course, is that because the electricity has been cut off, it's fuel that powers the generators. It's generators that then allow incubators, ventilator machines, and crucially, desalination plants. Because clean water is no longer accessible, people are drinking brackish water, according to doctors on the ground. That is leading to spiking uh, of, of rates in disease but also preeclampsia in pregnant women and so all of this really spiraling making it clear that fuel is very much at the center of efforts uh, diplomatic efforts to try to get that aid in but also appears to be deeply involved in a broader deal that may be surrounding the hostage issue or some kind of a possible humanitarian cause making it all that more complex and all that more dangerous for people on the ground who so desperately need to get it jake
2: so israel argues that if they let fuel in hamas controls gaza they will just seize it and the fuel will be used to fuel rockets which are, attack civilians in israel and that the fuel will be used for oxygen in the tunnels is there any way to guarantee that the fuel will go to the hospitals and go to the desalination plants and is it true that Hamas has fuel of its own?
8: So we actually put this to the UN because the way it's been explained to us is that the transportation of fuel would be going directly from one official body to another official body, that Hamas would not be involved at any point with the transport of fuel into Gaza. And We asked Uh, UNRWA, the, the U.N. agency that operates inside Gaza, if they have ever had Hamas come and try to appropriate fuel, if they have ever had Hamas steal fuel from their warehouses, as the IDF has claimed, they told us that they have never experienced that. In terms of Israel's allegation about half a million liters of fuel that Hamas holds, that is simply impossible for us to verify. But certainly, if it is there, it's not getting to the hospitals in Gaza.
2: All right. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. Soldiers with the Israel Defense Forces are among the hundreds missing after Hamas's surprise terrorist attack on October 7th. Remember, there's conscription in Israel. Every uh, young man and young woman, except for those who are exempt from service, has to join the military. And that includes 19 year old Roni Eshel. Roni was stationed at a military base in southern Israel near the Gaza border. Roni last texted her mother 18 days ago saying, quote, don't worry, I'm okay, I love you, with four heart emojis. I wanna bring in Roni's aunt, Tair Kowalski, who joins me now live. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm so sorry that we're meeting under these circumstances. That's Thank you for... horrible and I can't um, imagine what you're feeling. I I'll have... tell you. Well, tell me. I'll
15: tell you what our feeling are. Uh, thank you for letting us tell our story.
2: Yeah,
10: she's a beautiful girl,
2: Roni. I mean, she like is. Is. I have nieces and I...
15: She is, she's my niece. She's a 19 years old girl. She, you know, you say she's, she's a soldier, she's part of IDF, but she was captured at Israeli territory from a safe base and yeah. she has long lashes and beautiful eyes and she loves Taylor Swift and yeah. she loves Harry styles. And she has one more year for her to finish her duty. And she was planning on going with her mom and her sister to one of these concerts in Europe. And then she planned on going, travel New York and maybe study there. And she's just a 19 years old girl who's away from home. And we don't know. We don't know what happened to her. We don't know her whereabout. We don't know if she's alive or dead. We don't know how they treat her. We certainly don't trust this mercers and, and monsters to keep her safe. We saw what they're capable of yeah. when our families were butchered and our homes were burned. And, you know, her dad, Eyal, um, and, and her mom, Shaan, they have the weirdest prey to, to know that, to hear something, to hear. Like, you, you need, Can you imagine... You have to choose between finding out that she's being captured by hamas isis right or being kept or or being burned to death so hard that she's unrecognizable
2: yeah no i can't it's awful i mean the reason i mentioned that there's conscription in israel is because it's important to understand that there's no choice, you have to be in the military when you're 18, 19 years old, unless you're, I mean, some of the religious communities are exempt, but generally speaking, everybody's in the military when they're 18 or 19 years old, because in a country like Israel, you have to be in the military. You
15: have to be in the military, right. and you want to be part right. of the military, because, because you, you want to defend your family, right. and your home, and your border, and you know you learn so many values when you go to the army, and you, you, if you meet you know, kids 18, 19 years old here, we grow up so fast, like, there is a transition in these two years or three years that we're in the military that we're changing. We, we, we have responsibility. We're responsible for people. We're responsible for for homes. We're responsible for our borders.
2: We're responsible for protecting the rest of Israel from attacks. Yes. And, and from infiltrations.
15: Rony's job is to be a lookout, a lookout at the border, at the hottest border in Israel
2: at the gaza at the Uh, gaza
15: inside israeli territory
2: yeah no no i get it i get it what did did you hear from when did how did you find out and have you heard from the idf (sighs) have you heard from the government have they been have they been keeping you up to up to um speed on what's going on
15: what happened is that this black saturday october 7th there's a genocide that happened here in israel inside israeli territory. 1400
2: people killed yeah
15: yeah and Thousands of wounded and families that have been evacuated and stripped apart and 220 missing, kidnapped people who are women, children, babies, elders that were stolen from their bed even before it was morning and stolen from a music festival that me and my friends were supposed to go to and a cousin of ours.
2: Oh, you were going to go to the... Yeah,
15: we're going to go there to celebrate. To the festival. Yeah, to enjoy it. We have friends from New York coming in and we're Why like... Why didn't what? you go? Because we had Bruno Mars the day after.
2: So you wanted to save your strength. Yeah. yeah. So I, simple, right? So I want you to look at the camera and what would you say if Hamas or somebody from Qatar or Egypt or Turkey who might have influence what do you want them to know about Roni to get her home? What do you, what do you want to say to them?
15: I want to say, I want to say, I don't want to speak to Hamas. Hamas doesn't okay, but like,
2: to maybe but Maybe somebody who has influence with them.
15: But yeah, I want to talk to the international community. I want to speak to every citizen of the world who does not believe in terror and does not believe that 40 beheaded kids are responsible for anything but their own you know snooze and 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 anything else i want to reach out to you and i want to say to you that it's your responsibility to bring back Roni home and not only roni 30 kids that are in captivity in gaza in tunnels in the dark that no one knows if you know someone hugs them someone is wiping their tears that their parents are murdered and they're orphans right now because vicious vicious monsters decided that this is how they fight don't believe hamas isis don't believe them as they say it's for the palestinians they're against the palestinians they're against their own people they use them as shields they block the roads when idf say evacuate because we're coming we're coming for hamas we're not coming for people and it's your responsibility to tell the story and to understand the narrative and to understand that there is a very short window for these people to come back, for my Ronnie to come back. And if you go and you support this, you know, you feel awoke and you want to talk about the misery. There's lots of misery here in Israel. Israel wants to live inside Israel territory. And I reach out to you and I say, Roni is just a 19 year old girl. She's someone's daughter. She's someone sister she's someone grandkid yeah and we miss her and we need her home yeah this is not the first time my family has suffered from terror attacks this is happening to us a generation after generation after generation this is the fourth generation that we lose our family members so don't there's no good terror and bad terror there's only bad terror there are Mm -hmm. only bad monsters who steal babies from their beds i don't want to go into graphics you can find everything Everything online because Hamas ISIS has published it.
6: All right, take
2: her. Take cross, kid. I hope that you come back again with Ronnie and you tell I your wish. story with Ronnie.
17: Okay. I wish.
15: Thank you so much. Thank
17: you so much. We'll be right back. From executive producers Pak Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. I'm looking out from a rooftop
2: over Tel Aviv. It's almost midnight, 18 days since the horrific terrorist attacks by Hamas caught this country and frankly, the world by surprise, setting off a cascade of consequences, including now a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Part of that, the the lack of basic necessities, food and water and fuel, we'll get to that. But first, two other major breaking stories domestically in the United States. After 22 days without a speaker of the House of Representatives, Republicans finally got their act together.
7: The Honorable Mike Johnson.
2: Republican Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana is now House Speaker Mike Johnson, with unanimous Republican support, taking the gavel from former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And just like McCarthy, Johnson is a vocal supporter of former President Donald Trump and also was a key congressional figure in the failed efforts to overturn the 2020 election based on Donald Trump's lies about the election more on Johnson's election in a moment. But we begin with Donald Trump today, making a stunning appearance on the witness stand at his own civil fraud trial in New York. CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed is with us now. Paula, tell us why Trump was on the witness stand today and what happened.
13: Well, Jake, he made a brief appearance on the witness stand today not to talk about the substance of that $250 million fraud trial, but instead to answer questions from the judge about whether he may have violated a gag order that the judge had imposed. And The judge had previously barred Trump from making comments about members of the court staff, and that came after Trump posted about the judge's clerk suggesting that she was partisan. And Trump was subsequently fined $5,000 when that post remained up long after that gag order was in place. But today, Trump said that the judge was partisan, but also said that he was sitting alongside another very partisan person, appearing to once again reference the clerk. And now Trump's lawyers denied, that's who he was speaking about, and on the stand. Trump insisted that, yeah, He was talking about the judge, but the person next to him he was referring to was the star witness, Michael Cohen. But, Jake, the judge wasn't buying it. He said that he found Trump, quote, not credible and that these statements were intentional and hit Trump with a $10,000 fine. But, Jake, going forward, it's going to be a challenge for the judge in this case, judge in at least one of the other federal cases, to try to enforce these gag orders, at least the judge in the federal case here in D.C., said, look, I need to put on a trial and protect court staffers. But we know former President Trump is insistent. He is determined to try to paint all of these proceedings as partisan pursuits.
2: And, Paula, CNN has some new exclusive reporting on the Georgia election subversion case. Uh, we're hearing more plea deals might be in the works.
13: Yeah, potentially up to half a dozen. So the sprawling RICO case charged 19 defendants. Four of them have already secured deals with prosecutors. And our colleagues Zach Cohen, Nick Valencia and Jason Morris have learned the prosecutors are in talks with around six other defendants and that they're open to striking deals with pretty much everyone except for former President Trump, where there appears to be little desire to compromise. Now, Trump and his attorneys have suggested that this willingness to strike deals is a sign that this case is weak. But Jake, we know this is how RICO prosecutions and many criminal cases work. You try to flip defendants and really focus on a certain set of key defendants. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. And so far, they've been pretty successful in just a short amount of time. They've been able to secure plea deals from three people who worked very closely uh, with Trump's legal team or directly on that legal team to challenge the results of the 2020 election. And in addition, a bail bondsman, he was actually the first person to strike a deal. And as someone said, these, these are pretty favorable deals because, quote, the first to squeal gets the deal. The sooner you are willing to strike a deal with prosecutors, the more favorable the terms. And what we've seen, Jake, over the past several days are some really good deals for these defendants. As I said, three of them. Uh, people who work as attorneys, who worked on these legal challenges, and they have all been really keen to protect their livelihood, their bar licenses. They were able to do that through these deals. Let's see what else prosecutors can do with these other defendants they're hoping to secure a cooperation from.
2: All right, Paula Reed, waxing poetic. Thank you so much. Appreciate <laughs> it. I want to bring in The New York Times, Maggie Haberman. Maggie, um, let's start with what uh, we're seeing in New York today. Do you think a second fine for violating a gag order, $10,000, is going to convince Trump not to say whatever he wants to say whenever he wants to say it?
18: As we've seen, Jake, uh, Trump is going to test the bounds of whatever limits are put on him over and over. Now, we saw that he was fined in this case previously, just not under these circumstances. It wasn't in the the form of a gag order, but earlier in the AG's case against him, it did ultimately have an impact, but it took several days. I I think this might have an impact right now. I don't know how long-lived it will be, Uh, $10,000 to Trump. He doesn't like parting with money, but it's not a lot of money.
2: You noted that Michael Cohen, his, uh, Trump's former fixer and lawyer, has been looking for a showdown with Trump for a few years. How much of Trump's anger today and Trump's comments on social media are driven by seeing his former fixer on the stand publicly, publicly betraying
11: him?
18: It's a big piece, this personal nature of this view, Jake, in terms of the behavior you're seeing from Trump. He wanted to be at this trial. He doesn't have to be there. He's not a criminal defendant, and he didn't have to go. But he has wanted to go when Michael Cohen was testifying to do it last week when uh, Cohen was supposed to be there is there now he thinks that things go better when he shows up at trials now as we've seen he ended up getting fined by the judge so that didn't quite work out but he accomplished what he wanted to do which was to glower at michael Cohen for a while i do think that Cohen gets under Trump's skin i do think that Cohen uh, rattles Trump in a very specific way and i think you are seeing Trump try to do it back
2: And uh, take a look at the image uh, CNN just obtained of Donald Trump on the stand today. It's a courtroom sketch. We always like these interesting courtroom sketches. Everybody has their own little interpretation of him. This is uh, Trump when he was being questioned under oath about the gag order. Uh, The judge didn't find Trump's explanation as to who he was talking about when he referred to somebody as being uh, more partisan than somebody else. Trump said he was talking about Michael Cohen, but the judge didn't believe him. He thought he was talking about his clerk, and the judge then fined Donald Trump uh, $10,000 for violating it. He, he basically called Trump a liar. Basically, insinuated Trump was lying under oath. What, what's your reaction to this? And uh, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, you're not an art critic, but what's your take on the image?
18: Unfortunately, I can't see the image, um, so I'm, I'm sorry that I can't. My huh. take on what took. I don't have a, a, a reverse uh, showing here. But what my take from what happened on the stand is you are correct that Judge Goran has not liked how Trump has dealt with this trial said very bluntly that he doesn't find him credible. Now, does that mean he doesn't find him credible in every instance? I don't know that that matters. He's saying it uh, while Trump was under oath. And Trump, remember, Jake, is going to have to testify in this trial as a witness in the next two weeks. And so the fact that this is going into his questioning with this level of rancor with the judge, it's just not helpful to him at a time when he's trying to save his
17: company.
2: All right, Maggie Haberman, good talking to you. Thank you so much, my friend. A very busy afternoon here on The Lead. We're live from Tel Aviv. A brand-new Speaker of the House was elected just a few hours ago. Republicans managing to get their ducks in a row or whatever in a row. One of the first orders of business for the new speaker. That's next. We're back with another major story we're following tonight. It has been 22 days since eight Republicans conspired to oust then speaker Kevin McCarthy and weeks of dysfunction followed. Weeks where Republican lawmakers were unable to come to a consensus of who should replace him. And the House of Representatives for the first time in American history had no speaker and the legislative branch was not functional. Today, finally, House Republicans came together and like adults, managed to coalesce around a candidate. They picked Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana as their new speaker. CNN's Manu Raju joins me now from Capitol Hill. Manu, Speaker Mike Johnson, uh, he's known as a big Trump supporter. Uh, He was one of the fervent voices pushing to overturn the 2020 election results in states that Biden won. He's one of the most conservative members of the House. Our swing uh, district Republicans worried at all uh, about any blowback for supporting him.
17: Well, that's a great question, Jake. In fact, I put that question to a number of these members that are 18 Republicans from districts that Joe Biden carried in 2020. And the question for them is how Speaker Johnson will deal with them in their conference. Those 18 members all voted for Speaker Johnson today on the House floor and even as he has taken positions that are much further to the right on issues like gay marriage, which he opposes, issues such as abortion, calling for much stricter limits on abortion, bans that some of these members simply do not support. And also in 2020, drafting a brief, supporting a Texas lawsuit, seeking to invalidate electoral results, showing that Joe Biden was victorious across several swing states. Mike Johnson led the charge on that effort in the House. I put that question to several New York Republicans, people who are supporting him, people who are central to this narrow Republican majority and could see their seats flip in the next elections, given how their districts are swing districts, they downplayed his, his past positions and simply said they want to look forward. Listen.
19: Does
5: that concern you? I'm going to judge Speaker Mike Johnson, by the way, in which he engages with members like me.
17: This is the present. Uh, Today's 2023, whatever happened in the past. Um, again, that was a vote that he took. It was a it was it was uh, more vote. Of a vote. He drafted a brave. But those are questions that he has to answer. Right. I didn't draft it. I'm not supporting it. Um, And again, he has, he remains, uh, even as Speaker of the House, he remains one vote. But if the overall
6: premise is that you don't have faith in the results, let's be fair about it. And there's a whole bunch of Democrats who did that very same thing in 2016.
17: Now, last, Congressman, Congressman Lolota trying to equate Democrats questioning Donald Trump's victory in 2016 to the efforts to overturn the electoral results in 2020. It's two separate matters, but nevertheless, something that he plans to argue. The larger point here, Jake, is that these metamers are giving him room, Speaker Johnson, room after weeks of infighting, weeks of battling. They simply want to move on with the legislative process, and they said his past views are his past views. Now it's time to unite his Republican Party and deal with the pressing issues that they have, I've been unable to deal with, given the state of paralysis amid the GOP infighting. Jake.
2: All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's political director, David Chalian, as well as former Republican representative from Michigan, Fred Upton. Uh, Congressman, let me start with you. Uh, why do you think uh, Speaker Mike Johnson had the magic touch here?
11: Well, we'll see. I mean, this the speaker nightmare is now over. Uh, that's for sure. But now he's got to deal with the nightmare in the rest of the world, and I think that's what's going to determine his success or not. Now, you know, as you talk to particularly moderates, those members who were ele- those Republican members that were elected in uh, districts that went for Joe Biden, they're going to be at the table. He's the door's not going to be locked. They're going to be at the table. They're going to be weighing in. Uh, already right now, as we talk, uh, the House is passing a resolution to condemn the attack uh, that Hamas did uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's passing overwhelmingly in the House. But you got Ukraine, you've got the Israeli uh, aid package that the president sent up. Uh, obviously, you have the CR in a couple of weeks. Those are going to be the issues that really determine the success or failure of Speaker Mike Johnson.
2: So, David, um, one of the things that's interesting is uh Jim Jordan and his role in the efforts to overturn the election uh, was, was a big reason why people did not want him, a small number of people, but people, Republican congressmen, did not want him to be speaker. Specifically, Congressman Ken Buck, uh, who said that that was really key to his vote, that, uh, J- that Jim Jordan would not say that Joe Biden was elected president. But Mike Johnson, Speaker Johnson was also a big part of the effort to decertify the 2020 election results. He drafted an amicus brief in support of that crazy Texas Attorney General lawsuit. He hasn't said that Joe Biden won fair and square. Ken Buck voted for him. Why did Jim Jordan not get the pass that Mike Johnson got?
19: Well, perhaps Ken Buck had a beef with Jim Jordan or doesn't like the persona of Jim Jordan as the face of the Republican party. Ken Buck will have to answer that, but you are right to note uh, Mike Johnson's role in drafting that brief, in whipping up votes for Republicans uh, to get onto that brief, and reporting back to the Trump uh, White House about uh, who's on board with it and who wasn't. And as you noted, uh, that Texas case was not even you know taken up by the Supreme Court. They just uh, dismissed it as it as it didn't have standing. And this is something that. Uh, Congressman Aguilar, the Democrat, the number uh, three Democrat in the uh, House leadership, number two Democrat in the House leadership, uh, mentioned in his speech, Jake, and listen to how a Republican Congresswoman responded on the House floor. House Republicans have put their names behind someone who has been called the most
12: important architect of the Electoral College objections. Yeah, right. He's spearheaded. That's fair. That's fair. We know how you feel. Yeah you made that clear.
19: Damn right is what uh, a, a Republican member shouted back to Aguilar. This was a credential of Mike Johnson's that he successfully sold to the Republican conference while it was uh, a discrediting factor for somebody like Tom Emmer who couldn't get out of the gate.
2: Yeah, that was Congresswoman Luna from Florida, I believe. And, and Congressman Upton, this is, I mean... This is two-thirds of the House Republicans voted uh, to disenfranchise Arizonans and Pennsylvanians based on these election lies. So it's not a surprise that the new Speaker of the House is also an election liar, I suppose. I mean, Emmer was the, the outlier. It was going to be an election liar, whether it was McCarthy or Scalise or Jordan or Johnson. I guess this is just what your party is now.
11: Well, it is dominated by those folks. And, of course, you know, Trump was behind this. I mean, uh, Emmer won a majority in the caucus. I voted with Emmer, by the way, on that same issue uh, when I was, uh, ret- of course, retired earlier this year. But Trump was somewhat neutral. And then when when Emmer won the nomination in the, in the conference a, a day or so ago, he then came out against him and he actually uh, torpedoed his chances. And, and if you look at some of the press reports, You'll see that even Matt Gates today is doing a victory lap. It's almost like they concocted this scheme to get rid of Gaetz's archenemy, Kevin McCarthy, and tried to figure out a way how to get Mike Johnson in. And, you know, as, as we all know, there there really is not more of a conservative in the House than Mike Johnson today. But he's got the gavel, and we'll see how he rules. And he's got a deal with the Senate that requires 60 votes to get anything done. And you got the clock ticking on all these issues, Ukraine, Israel, the CR, the farm bill, the FAA reauthorization bill. The list is long. Uh, They were supposed to be in recess next week. Uh, They're not going to be, nor should they be. They need to work.
2: Yeah. All right, Congressman Upton, David Chalian, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Up next, live here from Tel Aviv, new comments today from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on his country's timeline on a potential ground invasion into Gaza. We'll be right back. Czech Republic is We're back with our World Leave, live from Tel Aviv. The growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza at an inflection point. If no fuel is allowed to be delivered into Gaza, the biggest humanitarian operation inside Gaza's borders, we're told, will shut down. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency today warning that it is the only lifeline for Palestinian refugees and hundreds of American citizens are also still trapped inside Gaza, unable to leave as Hamas is stopping people from even approaching Egypt's border crossing. The ongoing Israeli bombardment of Hamas targets in Gaza, retaliation for the Hamas terrorist attack and mass murder and kidnapping of Israeli and other civilians. CNN's Nick Robertson is in steroid Israel. Uh, Nick, uh, I'll get back to the fuel issue in just a moment. But first, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke this evening, just a few hours ago, saying that a ground incursion into Gaza is coming. But he still left the timing, at least publicly, up in the air.
6: He did. Uh, And it's hard to get a sense on the ground from the troops who are close to the front line precisely when it's going to come, other than they say that they're ready What we hear here and what we've been seeing this evening seems to indicate that the tempo around the front is heating up. We've seen, for example, more tank fire, these horizontal big red tracers you're seeing perhaps uh, on the video there firing across the screen. Uh, We've seen a little bit of that. We're seeing a lot more of it tonight. We're hearing a lot of heavy detonations um, and a lot of artillery being fired into Gaza. We were close to Gaza today when there was a big strike on Gaza City, saw the the smoke rising. And what the prime minister has indicated is that these uh, air operations, the artillery and missile strikes, uh, that the ground incursion will simply be a continuation of that. Everyone here is expecting it. People we speak to in this town around here say, we need it to happen. We're not going to feel safe until it happens. He has, the prime minister has the support of the people. How can they live close to the border, they say, unless this security issue is dealt with? Um, The the groundwork is being laid. And as you say, we don't know when, but I think we know it is going to happen.
2: Netanyahu has the support of the people when it comes to a ground incursion on that issue. I don't know about the political issue, uh, Netanyahu's support. Um, The Israeli military uh, has gone back and forth publicly on whether or not it's going to allow fuel into Gaza. Where where does this thing stand right now?
6: Yeah, and I think to your point about Netanyahu's political standing, a lot of those who want to see that incursion also tell us they want to see they're, they're, they're happy uh, for Netanyahu to step down and get out of the way after all of this. They're not necessarily fa- fans of his. And interestingly, today for the first time, he actually said, yes, everyone will be asked questions about the security failure around October the 7th. That's the first time he's come out publicly and said even I, even me, I will face questions about it as well. Um, that's a sort of change in narrative on the fuel. No change in narrative from the from uh, the IDF there they are still saying no fuel into Gaza because any fuel we put in uh, Hamas will use it for their military advantage uh, and to the point of saying look Hamas has all the fuel it needs it's been stockpiling it we've been watching it go in um, and we know that they have it already so this is a real toe-to-toe point of contention about, about the fuel and the IDF is not budging on it. Jake?
2: So no fuel in Gaza uh, to these humanitarian groups that could obviously be devastating. What would it look like?
6: Um, it would look like the healthcare facilities uh, not functioning. It would look like they're not being oxygen. It would look like, like, like they're not being light available inside the hospitals for surgeons to do their work. And of course, they're working deep inside the hospitals because they're afraid of incoming missiles. So they work in places that need uh, that need electrical light. Um, electricity drives the um, the water desalination plant. That's one of the only areas where there's a limited amount of water becoming available for the citizens. So um, it, it, it means that there would be a, a desperately exacerbated humanitarian situation for those 2.2 million people short of water short of light, short of medical facilities. Um, and for many of them, their, their, hopes of, uh, their, their hopes of seeing a better day, um, that dwindles too, because it will feel very tough for them.
2: All right, Nick Robertson, thank you so much. Coming up, we're going to go to Capitol Hill and talk to a senator about the conflict playing out in the Middle East after he just returned from a trip here to Israel. Stay with us. And we're back with our worldly, just moments ago, the U.S. House of Representatives with overwhelming bipartisan support passed a resolution in support of Israel, and they can actually do that now because they finally have a speaker after 22 days without one. It is House Speaker Mike Johnson of Louisiana who said that this resolution would be his very first order of business after Hamas attacked, murdered, and kidnapped Israeli citizens and citizens from other countries on October 7th. With us now, Republican Senator John Thune of South Dakota. He just returned from a congressional delegation trip to Israel. Senator, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Tell us what you saw and experienced on your trip to Israel.
20: Well, we hit Jake. We hit uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Israel. In Israel, for sure, uh, we met with families of uh, family members who had been taken hostage, which was a very, uh, as as you know, powerful and emotional. Uh, meeting and just reaffirmed uh, our commitment to do everything working with our administration here in the United States as well as with regional partners in the region to try and get the, the American hostages out. We still have a number of them there unaccounted for and, uh, and that's a obviously a huge priority for those families and certainly a huge priority for uh, all the members of our delegation and then of course met with the Israeli officials to to find out get an update on what's happening with regard to the conflict and, uh, you know, the Israelis li- live on a, a razor's edge there. They have been now for the last, uh, since Hamas took power back in the 2005 timeframe. Uh, they have been living next door to somebody whose principal mission in life is to kill Jews and to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. So this has real-world consequences for them, and uh, they view it as an existential uh, debate as to whether or not they're going to be around as a nation and as a people.
2: Obviously, there are a lot of concerns about the innocent Palestinians in in Gaza and the humanitarian crisis there, uh, not only because of the airstrikes, but because of the inability of aid to get into Gaza. Would you support uh, a temporary pause in airstrikes, if you don't want to call it a ceasefire, just a a temporary pause um, to allow some of the aid to get in?
20: I think the uh, obviously the Israelis, uh, as much as anyone, want to make sure that innocents are protected from all this. And I think any questions about how that's done needs to be in consultation with them. Uh, if they believe that uh, a, a pause makes sense, then uh, I think we, I would obviously uh, you know defer to their judgment on that. But I think you know the the, uh, the argument that's being made out there about a ceasefire, potential ceasefire. I think all that does is embolden and enable and strengthen Hamas. So I think the Israelis understand that there are innocent Palestinians who are victims of Hamas, just like you know they are in all of this, and want to do everything they can to make sure that those people are protected. and And they're going to try and do that in, in as they continue to try and uh, eliminate Hamas, uh, make sure that they protect innocents. But uh, as you know, that's uh, not easy to do because Hamas uses these civilians as human shields. and Clearly, they have no concern about however much human carnage gets accumulated as a result of this. Uh, So it's really, uh, I think, the Israelis' call and uh, working with our regional partners, trying to make sure we do everything we can to get hostages out and make sure that innocents are
2: protected. We've been talking to a couple Palestinian-Americans who are trapped in Gaza, and there are something like 500 to 600. Americans stuck in Gaza. It's obviously a complicated issue, um, but what is your understanding as to why these Americans can't get out? And do you think the Biden administration is doing enough to get them out?
20: Well, what we've tried to reiterate and emphasize with the administration is this needs to be job number one. Let's get Americans home, um, including you know Americans we know about as well as Americans that are unaccounted for. That ought to be their principal objective in all this. And I think we have been. Uh, there have been discussions with uh, those in the area who can help as partners in making that happen, um, and, and I hope we see some progress there. But you know, at the end of the day, um, that's at least from our standpoint here in the states, we want to do everything we can to get Americans who are affected by this in Gaza back home safely, and, uh, and we should be working with whomever, and I think, again, there are some folks who have some influence in all this uh, in the region to make that happen.
2: It looks like after uh, almost three weeks of whatever it was, uh, your colleagues in the House finally have themselves a speaker-elect, Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Uh, In his comments, he has talked about uh, aid to Israel, not so much about aid to Ukraine. Are are you concerned about that? Will there be uh, congressional aid to Ukraine in the future?
20: Well, my expectation is that there will, um, and again, I don't know exactly how it all comes together at this point. We have our own process in the Senate. The House, as you point out, has a new speaker, which we're grateful for, and hopefully they can get up and functioning again and, and deal with the issue of providing aid for Israel. and. Uh, we'll see about, obviously, what the, where the votes are on Ukraine, but I certainly expect that there will be a, a big vote in the end in the House and the Senate for a package that supports America's national security objectives, which in my view include uh, supporting and defending Israel, their right to defend themselves, and then also uh, making sure that we stop Russia's aggression in Ukraine.
2: Speaker-elect Johnson um, not only voted against Uh, counting the electoral votes from uh, Arizona and Pennsylvania based on that wild election lies from Trump and company. He's uh, one of the guys that helped organize that crazy uh, uh, election lawsuit from Texas. Uh, The attorney general there got all the signatures, uh, went to the U.S. Supreme Court. They didn't even take a look at it because it was so full of nonsense. Does that concern you at all?
20: Well, he's now the Speaker of the House. And, um, you know, so he has a huge responsibility in discharging and executing the Speaker's responsibilities uh, and duties under the Constitution. So, um, you know, I have my own views, and I think you know, know well what those are with regard to the last election. But as we look forward, it's really important now that we try and, and execute on an agenda, not only that addresses what are vital national security interests of in the United States, including what's happening abroad and what's happening at our southern border. Um, but also just the basic functions and duties of of funding the government. Uh, There's a lot of work to do, and um, I'm I'm, I'm all for let's move forward. Let's address the challenges this country faces in the future. And, uh, and, you know, whatever has happened in the past, uh, it's uh, at this point, at least in my view, uh, as the Speaker of the House, uh, his responsibility is to govern this country for the future.
2: Senator John Thune of the great state of South Dakota, thanks so much for joining us, sir. Thanks, Jake. Coming up, my visit today with a father who tried to hide from Hamas in a safe room, the tragedy that he learned about when he got out. We're back in Tel Aviv with our coverage of the war on Hamas in Gaza and the terrorist attack on October 7th that started it all. And I'm going to tell you a story now of... Almost unimaginable cruelty, Hamas killing a mother in front of her three-year-old son. This is a story we've heard time and time again since the October 7th Hamas attack, even as these very same terrorists tried to use the very same boy for propaganda purposes to show their alleged compassion. (laughs)
9: Endless lemons, and here there is more Millions of fruits and vegetables without end
2: Her name was Adi Kaplun She and her husband Anani moved to Kibbutz Holit near Gaza To build a life together
9: This is our bedroom, and the bed was built by my husband
2: Adi gave a tour to an Israeli news station a few years ago
9: I study Judaism, and it helps to calm me And some of the lessons are practical We know this language, but we speak in a different dialect
2: On the morning of October 7th, Anani was out on a sunrise hike with friends, while Adi was home with their three-year-old son, Negev, and six-month-old son, Eshel. Her dad, Yaron, was visiting the kibbutz, staying in the guest house across the street. And then, Hamas attacked. All the shooting started at 6.30
1: in the morning. I immediately called her to ask if I can come be with her. She said, absolutely not. No way, definitely not. She said, Dad, stay in the apartment. Don't come out and close yourself in the safe room. Of course,
2: I listened to her. Hamas terrorists arrived on motorcycle and foot, killing innocent civilians and migrant workers. Yaron closed himself off in a safe room, as did Adi, hiding with her sons in her house's safe room. We hear shooting, then quiet. Another house.
1: Shooting, then quiet. At 12.30... Adi sends me a text message. Dad, lock the door strongly. We guess that according to what happened afterward, that was when they came into her house. There was shooting, there was lots of shooting noises, very loud, very close to me. I tried to call her. She didn't answer. After a few times, the phone was disconnected. I already had a bad feeling.
2: Yoram had no way of knowing Hamas terrorists had dragged his grandsons, Negev and Eshel, to another house where Hamas terrorists then fired into a shelter and killed Chaim Katzman and then dragged out Avital Alajem.
21: They took me to the living room and then came more terrorists with the children of my friend Adi, which is, she is still missing. Um, They gave me Eshel, which is, he is four and a half months old, Um, and Negev, who is almost four years old, both traumatized and they just gave them to me
2: Avital Negev and Eshel were then kidnapped and dragged at gunpoint to Gaza as hostages Hamas then even used images of Negev in propaganda to show how compassionate they were propaganda that appeared in Arabic media that we will not show you the reality of course was far different
21: They were traumatized they were shocked um, Negev has a bullet had a bullet that crossed his foot, and uh, Eshel the baby, he was breathing so much uh, gunfire and his lungs were absorbing so much, um (sighs) yeah, both of them were traumatized and they were just quiet. They kept, like, you know, gazing at the terrorist with terrified eyes. Negev, the four-year-old, he was wounded. So he couldn't walk, he was crawling, he was crying. It was a traumatized experience.
2: Miraculously, Avital managed to escape with the boys, and they were able to reunite with their father. Yaron was rescued from his safe room by Israeli soldiers. They searched Adi's house. They found nothing and no one. The entire house was filled
1: with so many bullets, bullets from a firearm. The door of the safe room, the door looked awful. It was full of holes, full of bullet holes, dozens of
2: bullets. Then the mystery. Where was Adi? Where was she?
21: We don't know. She's missing.
2: Days passed. I mean, I
17: couldn't even touch my shoulders. I was so tense.
2: And then the grim answer came. Adi had been murdered. Her body was booby trapped. It had been hidden in her house. It had been there the whole time.
1: It turned out afterward that because I didn't move anything, everything was booby-trapped with grenades. And only after three days, it turned out that a D was underneath all the mess under the bed. They shot her. They shot her really cruelly. They really murdered her. All the bullets that were in the door, her body absorbed
17: some of them. It's a terrible ending. But there is an end. And every day it just—it's uh, worse. It gets worse. There's more hostages. There's more. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, I, you know, just the three days waiting, not knowing. Um, I can't imagine the people who are. Were 17 days and now waiting and don't know. I, I can't imagine.
2: The grandsons thankfully were alive, but how is Negev today? What had he seen? His foot is now healing, but. What of his heart?
17: What of his soul? I know that he was told right from the start that his mother was not coming back. I I don't know how he's processing it.
2: What was the purpose of killing Adi Kaplun? What does it achieve to kill her in front of her baby boys? For now, all that Jackie and Yaroon can do is grieve the loss of their beloved daughter and hug
6: their grandsons. I came first to the hospital. And uh, Negev was eating supper at that time. And he told me, Saba, come sit beside me. I wanna, I, I'm eating supper and I want you to sit beside me.
17: I was just so glad to see that he, that he was running around and that Eshel has the most beautiful smile.
11: And I got to hold him.
2: Anani Kaplun Anani, the widower, he now has to decide whether to move back to the kibbutz, whether to move back to the home where his wife was slaughtered in front of his sons. The kinds of decisions no one should ever have to make. We'll be right back.